than 25. Yeah, that's right. Um, like, you know, answer the question. It essentially is my approach. It's so, like, sorry. My iPad is breaking up here. Can people hear me? Okay. Some heads shaking. Yes. Okay. Good. Like freezing, though, it looks like. Doug might be freezing at the time. I'm not sure. I'm going to try my laptop. No problem. Uh, let's just give it. No, I think we're almost all here, so let's just give it one more minute. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started. Good evening, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, I posted. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Posted on the, in the files portion uh, for today online, both our next outline on the early Middle Ages, as well as the sort of midterm assessments. Which I don't know if to me an exam has to have like at least two essays to count as an exam, so I'm just calling it midterm and leaving it open as to whether it counts as a as a full test or not. Um, there are, but it gives you a sense of honestly how the final will look. Um, in terms of format, except it will just be longer. So, given given our um, rest of day, I reduced actually a little bit what what the typical output would be for for this exam. There's only one essay instead of two, and I think I reduced the number of IDs by um, I don't know a couple. So there's you get to pick eight of fourteen identification, and then. There's just the one essay on the councils, basically. And the key thing, again, as I, I think I've mentioned, um, you know, at the outset, but pro hopefully other times as well, um, the key thing is to sort of relate how what we've learned ties into some of these broader themes of um, of the course around around you know church and culture and and um, the development or growth evolution of the church and, and how things can be somewhat complex. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, obviously it's a take home exam, right? You can open your book or look in your notes or look online to tell me when, you know, Constantine lived. So that's less interesting to me um, than, you know, tying it into how we, how we talked about, you know, a given individual or term in the course of our, you know, last several weeks of lectures. I really do, uh, my, the expectation is for the exam to just be based on what you've learned in, in um, the class and in Bidmar. There's no uh, sort of thinking that you'd go to 
you know, other sources or, or anything like that. Um, it, it's really simply just a way to uh, check in with everybody and see how things are going. And um, I was thinking about it and I mean, I think this might be a little bit of a double-edged sword, but you, you all can tell me what you think. Uh, my sort of proposal is to make the exam due not not in a week, um, but rather just to give ample time. There are a couple terms on there. If you did look at it, you may have realized that there are a couple terms we haven't yet got to, which we will today. Um, so my my sort of thinking about this is that I would make it due on April 1st. It's not actually an April Fool's joke. Um, April 1st is Holy Thursday, right? I believe. Um, and I, I mean, I don't, I mean, as maybe as appropriate as it would be for the exam to be due on Good Friday, um, I, I, I prefer that no one be left working on Good Friday. I mean, if at all possible, at least not on the church history. Um, and so I'd rather have it due April 1st. Now, the only reason I'm saying it's a double-edged sword is we're gonna keep going. You know, we'll have two classes next Monday and the following Monday, the 29th. And so I, I wouldn't want, you know, you to sort of lose, lose sight of this information. It's a little bit fresher now, but, um, you know, again, the, the point here isn't to put you into a time crunch. Um, so if everyone's okay with that, I mean, I'll entertain any objections. If, if you want, we can make it do, you know, next Monday or next Wednesday or something, but I'm happy to give you till April 1st. Does that sound good to folks? Maybe nod your approval or thumbs up. Yeah. Okay. Right. So let's Thank do you. that. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's off. It's okay. But let me know. Get it at any time. We get it at any time. That's right. Yeah, whenever you have it. I mean, you don't have to wait until April 1st. Um, so you send it to me, and then I will... For, for assessments, like for the exam, this exam or for the paper, uh, I'll acknowledge receipt. Like I'll just shoot you back a note that says got it, so you know. Um, and we just use your email address that we have on the directory. Precisely, yeah, and on the syllabus, DB for shell edge email. Do I? I don't want to wait, like take too much time. But do you take? There's an exam feature within Populi? Do other professors have you do the exams in Populi? Never. It, it looks strange to me. Like I, I spent some time last semester, I think, trying to sort of monkey around with it and see what it would be like. And it just didn't seem, it seemed more conducive if I were giving you multiple choice or something. I just actually took one of those my first time. And yeah, there was like multiple choice, some fill in the blank. And then like some short answers. Okay. Well, maybe I should maybe I should give it another whirl at some point. But no, that's interesting. Um, okay, good. Nothing, you know, no no particular requirements in terms of the format or whatever. You know, just answer the questions. Um, the, the identification should be like a paragraph, basically. Um, the key thing is to emphasize the historical significance. Um, you know, why does this person matter? Why did this event matter in the unfolding of church history? And then the essay is like a question with a, a number of sub-questions. And if you address the sub-questions, uh, you'll be fine. Any other, I mean, you may not have had a chance to even look at it. So any questions for now? And like I said, don't hesitate to email me or, well, and we meet twice more before it's due. Just very quickly, um, we're identifying the eight out of the 14. Um, 
Do you have any preference as far as length? Is, or can it just be a flat statement, or does it need to be a paragraph? Or what, what do you what, what would you expect? Oh, for the identification, the eight identification. Yeah, I think a paragraph is probably like the right length, give or take. But a couple sentences, you know. Um, so and so lived in the fourth century and was, you know, involved in these things. He or she did one, two, three things, and then the significance is whatever it is. Um, you know, it, it, these identification questions are like a paragraph. Okay. Great. Let's, um, I guess if, if anybody hasn't had a chance to look at it, you know, when we take our break, if you want to just open it up real quick and then you can shoot me a question either over the break or when we, when we reconvene. Um, so last time we ended with Augustine and I, I ran out of time before mentioning, I think the, the really the last thing I wanted to say about him, which involves the, the, um, the debate or the, you know, ongoing battles over Pelagianism and his encounter with with that um, that mindset, that worldview. So Pelagius, oh, let me get the chat. Uh, Pelagius was a monk uh, who lived, you know, con contemporary of, of Augustine at the at late fourth uh, and into the fifth centuries. Um, and he was, again, like others that I think we've seen so far, he was a monk that was generally, you know, revered, widely respected for his piety, for his holiness. Um, he was not just, you know, uh, well-learned and sort of acknowledged for having, you know, a lot of, a lot of knowledge and insight, but, you know, had a good reputation for sort of moral uprightness. Um, you know, the story goes that he came to Rome, the city of Rome, around the year 400 or thereabouts, um, probably, you know, fairly old at the time, and, and seemingly was was shocked by what he saw in terms of the kind of the moral standards um, in Rome, and including among, you know, obviously including among the Christians, because by the year 400, of course, you know, Christianity was the official religion of the empire, so everyone was ostensibly a Christian. And so he began sort of speaking out against uh, the moral laxity that he observes and, you know, begins sort of preaching, if you will, a more rigorous standard of, of living, a more rigorous moral code. Um, he had tremendous confidence, you could say, in the human will. I think that's, you know, at the base of at the base of it, it you know, in, in many ways, is this tremendous confidence and almost optimism, in a sense, about human nature. Um, there's a, a little um, expression that almost certainly didn't originate with um, Pelagius, and it thought that it may have originated with um, Stoics, but Pelagius certainly adopted it, and it represents, you know, his thinking on this, just if I ought, I can. In other words, if there's something I'm morally obligated or obliged to do, then I have it within me to to perform that or carry out that obligation. 
and similar, and it, and it works both in a positive and a negative direction, right? So if I have an obligation to, um, you know, honor my parents or my country or whatever, I have the the wherewithal in my will to do that. Similarly, if I ought not to, um, you know, steal, um, then I have it within me to avoid those, you know, to avoid that. So he has a very, again, high, um, a very high conception of what's possible through human action. Um, he thinks that human, you know, human nature is such that it can accomplish great things. Now it's not, you know, I mean, Pelagius was very much a believer in, in God and the saving work of Christ. This is not like a modern sort of godless uh, ethic of individualism or something. But, you know, it, it kind of has an interesting manifestation in this period of, of Christian theology. Key to Pelagius' sort of theological contribution was a denial of um, the inheritance of original sin from Adam. The den a denial of the inheritance of original sin. I, I'm, I'm focusing or emphasizing the word inheritance there because... He's not denying Adam's sin and sort of like the presence of Adam's sin as something called original sin or the original sin. He's, he's denying that it, it's something that's trans, transmitted, passed on. He's saying that's not the case, that Adam's sin was Adam's alone. And so, um, you know, not only is it not transmitted, but therefore everyone has the power or can have the power not to sin. So, um, you know, he 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 sees the the story of Adam and Eve in a very uh, in a very different light than sort of the traditional the traditional um, Christian understanding and Jewish understanding for that matter. Now, just to be clear, and what's maybe a little bit counterintuitive at first is that Pelagius didn't think that most people were good. In fact, the contrary, he thought that most people were, you know, kind of bad and did bad stuff. I mean, just, you know, all he had to do was look around. And his ex explanation was that Adam, you know, what happened in the Garden of Eden essentially was that Adam set a bad example for others. He kind of, he kind of started a, you know, uh, a series of, uh, of events that, you know, gave, gave poor example of how to live a moral life and was kind of copied or influenced the successive generations such that it kind of, by the time we get to the, you know, his day, it kind of spiraled out of control. So what's the answer for Pelagius, but to say that um, if Adam kind of set this bad example, that others were quick to follow and led to all of this sinfulness and suffering, then the new Adam, Christ is the one who comes to um, set a good example, as a matter of fact, to, to, to set things straight, to demonstrate how one is supposed to live. And the only way that this sort of example, if you will, could be 
efficacious in Pelagius's view is for one to have uh, you know faith in Christ and in, in his and his resurrection. So it's a very um, in many ways it's it's a little different than we tend to think of it, but it's a kind of justification by faith alone, simply um, you know well before Luther, if you will, simply having this this faith in Christ would enable through baptism, through the washing away of previous sins, not original sin, but previous sins through baptism, could sort of enlighten you with almost a kind of divine reason that would then enable you to avoid sin. So in Pelagius's view, after baptism, we ha- all have the full power and duty to keep the divine law without, you know, without messing up even once. Um, Hector, was, was the phrase that you used, <clears throat> if I can, I ought, or if I ought, I can? I'm sorry, I missed that. It's the latter, if I ought, I can. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Um, so... Now, that's kind of, you know, an overview of, of Pelagius and some of his core themes. Now, where we get to the sort of the, the struggle with Augustine and the kind of so-called, you know, battles against Pelagianism is where it starts to get a little bit murky as to, um, as to you know, to what degree um, Pelagius would have accepted everything that was promoted and taught by his followers. So one of his, his most sort of ardent followers was a, a young lawyer named Celestius. And again, you don't have to worry about the, the name or, or anything too much. Um, it's in the chat, but it's simply to, to get at this point that I've made, I think, in other contexts, which is sometimes the things that get named after a person shift, um, you know, in the, in the generations after them by, by their followers. So Celestius was sort of the great advocate of Pelagius's thought, and just to give you a sense, a, a synod um, condemned six errors in his teaching. And again, we don't, we don't have to worry, you know, about every last detail, but just so you get the, the point here. So these were the, the teachings of Celestius, and by extension by um, Pelagius, that were condemned. The first is that Adam was made mortal, was created mortal, and would have died whether or not he had sinned. Again, very different understanding than than the, the more traditional understanding of the creation account. Second, and we've already seen this one, that the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not the entirety of humanity. Third, and, and again, this is, I think, important, that newborn children are in that state that Adam was in before the fall. So again, no original sin. And newborn children are sort of born into a, a state of sinlessness. Fourth, uh, again, this is condemned. This is a view that's condemned that neither by the death and sin of Adam does the whole race die, nor by the resurrection of Christ does the whole race rise, the whole human race rise. 
fifth, um, and this is an important one because this is actually what what we tend to think about sometimes when we think about Pelagianism, um, Celestius and, and others gave the impression that the law leads to the kingdom of heaven as well as the gospel. The keeping of the law leads to heaven as well as the gospel, and this is condemned. And the reason I, I highlight that one is because today, um, I think, Pelagianism is often a, a word, a term that's used that kind of references, um, I don't know if I use this word or if this expression, you tell me if you understand like what I'm trying to explain. It's a kind of works righteousness when they when it's typically used today. So a lot of times, you know, groups or whatever that are characterized as Pelagian or a person who's sort of a Pelagian or is guilty of Pelagianism or something is seen as believing that they can earn their salvation. That they can sort of work their way to heaven or earn their salvation. That's what I mean by works righteousness. And the reason it's connected to Pelagius is because he held that um, that a person could um, you know, perfectly follow the law and by virtue of that following of the law um, get to heaven. And then the last error that was condemned is that even before Jesus, there were men without sin. Which makes sense, right? If you're if you're a Pelagian and you think it's possible, it's unclear why you would like what's the what are the what are the odds? You know, what is, what's the probability that you'll go for thousands of years and only get to the sort of the first sinless person at the time of Christ? But, I mean, it didn't it didn't follow from their their worldview. And not to say that like most people walking around are perfect, but just that it, it, it's possible and that there were there were others who existed before Christ who were without sin. So just to be clear, all of these things are condemned um, by a synod. And then there's really a series of additional synods that take place largely in North Africa. What happens is, um, you know, these beliefs get presented to Augustine, who... I think, you know, you can probably imagine, you know, finds him quite problematic and, and distasteful, in part because of his, like, really intense personal experience of the grace of God not being the sort of single moment of, you know, uh, the remission of sin via baptism, but an ongoing presence of, of grace. Um, and also, Augustine had a very strong view, if you will, of of original sin. I mean, he thought that it really made a wound in human nature, that, that everyone was kind of quite quite damaged as a result. Not that that meant we were irredeemable, but simply that it had left a really significant impact on our ability to do what is good. And the only way we could get to uh, a place of, of you know, living a, a moral life and ultimately attaining salvation is through um, you know, belief in Christ and, and God's grace. So he, you know, is very outspoken in condemning what he sees as sort of a series of contradictory positions to what he knows quite, quite closely to, to be his beliefs. And so between, you know, 418 and 420 or so, um, you know, there are a series of synods mostly in North Africa where, um, 
you know, various people are involved, but the bottom line is in part led by Augustine's preaching and, and writing, um, Pelagianism is, is condemned. Any, um, oh, the, sorry, and I should mention just as an add-on, it was, it was included, some of these beliefs were included in the condemnations of the uh, Council of Ephesus in 431. Um, again, that wasn't the main point of the council, as we saw last time, but in a number of, you know, in some other decrees, they took up some of these teachings and condemned them. So there is a conciliar um, um, rejection of Pelagianism as well, but Augustine sort of led the charge against it prior to any of the church councils. All right, so let me pause there. Any questions about Pelagianism? Great. Oh, yeah. Um, today when I was reading uh, Bithmar, I know I'm going ahead right now, but um, St. Thomas Aquinas, he says that he kind of would have started um, from that position that um, creation is good at first. Um, I don't, I, I've never read too much of Thomas, but did he mean in light of the Bible, like we started off, like he created everything and it was very good. Or was Thomas talking about like what Pelagius was, is talking about, like everything is good until it sins? Yeah, good. Very good question. So Thomas is is sort of um, yeah, he's, in a way, he's almost between that those two positions. So uh, you know, he held the creation was good. I mean, the scripture seems pretty clearly to say that. Um, and that included a general, um, in Thomas's view, like a general like truth that that man was created good as well. And so the issue then becomes how did how did Thomas versus how did Augustine, if you will, understand the consequences of the effect of Adam's sin of original sin on you know all of mankind. And I think it's, you know, fair to say that in general, Thomas was less um, pessimistic about how, how deep this, this um, sin would sort of wound people. Now, with Thomas, you get sort of like the teaching that, I mean, I think is still fairly standard today, which is that the consequence of original sin is like this, you know, fancy word we call concupiscence which is something like a tendency towards sin or like an attraction to sin. Um, and he sees that as a consequence. Augustine, um, you know, in his day was, you know, again, I think it's fair to say more pessimistic about just how, how much damage was done um, by Adam and sort of how much were damaged by original sin. It's partly why his doctrine of grace is so strong not that Thomas's isn't, but um, I think if you're looking at, you know, putting them on a spectrum, um, you know, Augustine is certainly the m most kind of pessimistic about, you know, how human nature has been affected. Um, Pelagius is like pretty optimistic about the possibilities. And, and, and Thomas is, you know, not as pessimistic as Augustine, but still, you know, recognizing the reality of the consequences of sin. Paul? 
Uh, uh, so what would Pelagius see, or would he see actually any benefit to either baptism or the resurrection of Christ itself? Right. So, um, so it's interesting because Pelagius sort of arrived, and it's probably just it was a function of his, of his. Um, who knows? You know, his life, his his faith up to that that point. But he did very much believe that. Um, he did very much believe that sort of Christ was necessary, to. You know, in general, put men and women on the right course towards salvation. So you see, like, I, you know, in that error that was condemned, um, that was really a condemnation of Celestius and not Pelagius, but just set that aside for now, we see that proposition that there were sinless men before Christ. Um, and even if Pelagius held that specific view himself, what he certainly did believe was that something was necessary to kind of break the... I want to say break the spell, but break the sort of the generational example that was being set and passed on from Adam's time down through all generations that was like kind of uh, like the ripple effect, you know, like, you know, you throw a stone in a pond or something that that sin sin begets more sin and it's, it's passed down through generations. Pelagius sees Christ as the one as the new Adam, but as the one who who starts to you know, provide the counter, the counter example to then, um, sort of achieve, uh, perfect living, if you will. And the way that, and Pelagius believed following again, a lot of where the church had come to this point, that there was a need to profess faith in the resurrection. I mean, Pelagius affirmed the, you know, the Nicene Constantinopolitan creed and also that baptism, you know, was essential as an expression of his faith so he doesn't i mean he has a place very much for it it's it's largely a question of well what happens after that and in his view once you've been baptized man you're all set um and, and so that was that was you know one of the major differences thank you excellent um so with that, I think we're going to turn now sort of from Augustine to another totally unrelated kind of topic that's that's difficult, somewhat difficult to place in um, sort of the chronological approach that I try to, to, um, to do here. But, you know. It's something that's going on. It's important. I've, I've referenced it a couple times, and that's the sort of the development of monasticism. So monasticism. Um, and this is really like, uh, chronologically speaking, this goes back to you know, at least the, the third century, if not, you know, probably around the third century. So um, it's just it's just a topic that's important, important to point it out. Um, and, and we haven't had a chance. So I'm, I, I kind of tack it on here. Um, so monasticism or like the practice of 
living um, as a monk in a monastery uh, has, you know, by and large has its roots in the east, in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And really there were sort of two forms of, uh, well, no, let me back up. What was the, the impetus or the driving force um, that's likely behind the development of monastic life? I think the answer has a lot to do with like the desire that some early Christians perceived to um, to imitate Christ to the fullest extent possible. Um, you know, for some this meant martyrdom, and, and obviously for many, but but for others, you know, short of martyrdom or when you know when that wasn't um, on the agenda, when there wasn't a persecution coming to town. Um, a sort of imitation of his counsel of uh, sort of detachment from the world and poverty and and all of those things, uh, you know, trying and, and the necessity of prayer, all came together in a desire to um, you know sort of retreat from the world and and so grow closer to to um, God. Now there are two. You know, early on, there's sort of two different ways this takes expression. Um, one is a kind of solitary um, approach, and this is like the the hermit ideal, right? So, like the one one person just going off on their own. The the person that you know we associate most with that is Antony. If you have you know if you see from your outline, his dates are two fifty one to three fifty six. So, I mean, we think reasonably confident that those are accurate or close. He lived a very long life. Um, over, around or over 100 years. Um, I'd like to tell myself he did that by eating lots of steak. I doubt that's the case, um, but one can hope. Um, yogurt. What's that? Yogurt. Yogurt. Oh, no. Oh, New York Strip, ribeye. Um, so uh, Antony is like the hermit ideal, and then the other early ideal is represented as sort of a communal, um, a communal ideal, and that's uh, you know the best exemplar of that is Pacomius, who lived um, you know at the end of the third century and into the fourth century. So there's a, a kind of underlying question or set of questions around, you know, the development of monastic life, and especially the, let's say, the separatist nature of it. I mean, it was a kind of withdrawing from the world, right? Either you on your own are, go, are, are leaving, you know, your family or wherever you're living and going out into the desert, or you're leaving your family to, to go live in a monastery with, you know, a dozen other people who've made the same decision. What was, you know, how, how would we, how should we understand that in terms of the Christian's responsibility or the, sort of the way a Christian ought to be engaged in the world? This is especially challenging, um, or, you know, this is especially sort of questioned when it came to the sort of the hermit ideal 
and you know just the one person on on their own are, are they just pursuing their own salvation um you know how do we understand the counsel to love god and love our neighbor um you know if you're alone in the desert who's your neighbor uh and, and so this was something that um you know is questioned and again i, I think you know it's, it's no secret you, there's there are ways of understanding these forms of life that are, are very much in, in keeping with you know proper understanding of uh you know, following following christ but at the beginning there were sort of questions and, and debates if you will about it Pacomius and later others like uh, basil of caesarea whom we met um as one of the cappadocian fathers felt extremely strongly that there had to be a kind of social aspect or a community aspect to life in the church. And that's why they, they, um, that's why they sort of favored this arrangement of living in communities, even if they weren't very big. Um, so there were, for the first few centuries, you know, there, there are all of these, um, uh, you know, examples or stories, I should say, of monks who kind of went out on their own, again, typically in the desert to be, you know, uh, removed from the world. And, um, you know, that was, that was one thing. But then the, the movement, you know, towards greater long-term importance within the church was the development of these monastic communities where, um, you know, there was a, a common life and a certain rhythm to that life. So I mentioned um, Pacomius, and then I just mentioned Basil of Caesarea. I could just as easily have um, put his name on the outline again. Um, again, Cappadocian fathers, but a great uh, very influential figure in the development of monasticism in the East. Again, we're still in sort of the Eastern half of the Roman Empire. And uh, Basil, he rejected the sort of the hermit ideal as as sort of overly private and personal. He thought it was, it was lacking uh, a kind of constituent component of, of Christian life by being alone. And so, you know, he did not want to encourage people to follow Antony into the desert, you know, to, to live on their own. Instead, he set up, um, you know, what, what's now considered some of the first structures to monastic life in the East. And so from Basil of Caesarea, it seems that we get the, um, like the process that often accompanies joining today joining a religious order of um like of uh the point in time where you're a novice um which is known i'm sorry i'm typing this the novitiate hard work type and then you go from the novitiate or you're being a you're you know in the novice stage after a certain period of time normally several years then you make uh sort of final profession or, or solemn profession of vows, you know, that's still, obviously there's a lot of, you know, there can be intermediate steps and, and this kind of thing today, but, but, um, the idea of having a, a period of being a novice and then, a, and then entering into kind of a final profession, 
of membership in the monastery was is traced back to Basil in the fourth century. Basil also, um, and one of the things about the both monks and those who kind of went out into the desert on their own is they tended to be tended to be I, I mean this is a generalization but like very strong strong willed um, which makes sense you know to spend uh, you know 30 years in the desert or something it takes a certain certain kind of personality or, or certain kind of constitution and Basil is thought to have remarked that his monks and, and monks in general understood poverty and chastity better than obedience right so these are the three so-called three evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience are supposed to be like the three vows or three characteristics of, of this life. He said, well, look, they, they understand uh, poverty and chastity, but they, they aren't good at obedience. Uh, again, he thought that was a symptom of an overly private or personalized way of, of living. And in response to that, in his monasteries, he set penalties like pretty severe penalties for disobedience. And just to give you an idea, like we're not talking about like, you know, if a monk was caught watching TV after the lights out or something. Um, if a monk uh, took it upon himself to have an overly kind of austere fast without permission, because I'm gonna fast, you know, for a, a whole month, uh, just water or something, but didn't get permission, then that the monk would be, um, you know, punished for di for disobedience. That that not again. So when I say that he he had strict punishments uh, for disobedience, not just for like doing things that we might think of as bad. It was also as a way of inculcating in the monastery a, a, an order and a respect for and uh, respect for authority, but also the need to be obedient. This is a general comment from, you know, the, the early growth of monasticism that was, you know, somewhat bumpy in, in this way, because it could apply to both the individual monk, uh, sorry, the individual hermit living out on their own, like Antony, or even collectively to a group of monks in a monastery, which is that the danger is that if all of your life is devoted to getting closer to God and, and, and in, in increasing your knowledge of God and, and all of that stuff. If everything you do is directed toward that end, you've separated yourself from the world. Um, you know, you're, you're just simply in prayer 24 seven or, or whatever the case may be. Um, the, the consequence of that at times, and seemingly this is a, the lesson that was being learned in the early church is that some hermits and monks um, began to view the sacraments of the church as secondary or in more severe cases as unnecessary. So like, yeah, like the guy that works not a nine to five job and like whatever, doesn't really think about his faith except when he goes to church on Sunday, like he needs the sacraments because that, that guy needs help. You know what I mean? Like he's not, he's not cutting it. He's not getting the job done when it comes to, you know, following Christ, but not me. Like I'm out here in the desert. Like I sleep an hour a night between two and three, the other 23 hours I'm praying. Like, what do I, you know, what do I need? H how is, 
how is participating at mass or you know whatever going to get me any closer than I already am through my like complete and total um, handing over of my own life in, in service and devotion to God. So this is part of the problem um, that exists in the early church. And it was part of the, um, it was part of the sort of driving force behind folks like Basil and others to create a, a greater structure and then to create rules. Um, and so we know, yeah, I mean, I'll get to him in a second here, the rule of Benedict in the West, right? The rule of St. Benedict is, I think, a very pretty famous um, work in the Christian tradition. But the idea of having, you know, a set rule that governs, you know, a given monastery actually really comes from the East. Basil certainly in, instituted such thing. Now, since Basil himself was a bishop, it won't be, you know, any surprise to learn that a part of this rule for him and, and subsequent rules were was to include, you know, the notion that that the the monastery, the monks who lived there were under the authority of the bishop. And you, you may know that um, you know, in many ways, even down through the modern age, 20th century, 21st century, this is one of the kind of perpetual challenges that exists within the church between, you know, monastic life, which is in some ways built on the idea of, you know, separation and self-government and, and all of that in, in pursuit of holiness and how that relates to coming under the authority of one. And then what we'll see, I'm getting way, way, way ahead of the story, but what you'll see is, I'm sure you know, is that specific religious communities institute their own structures of authority. So you have, you know, Benedictine monasteries all over the place, but then you have like a superior who's in charge of all of them, especially when we get to like the time of the Reformation and after this really takes hold where you have, you know, like the Jesuits, there's a superior general. And so the question then becomes if I'm, if I'm a humble monk, whatever, and I have a superior that I answer to, you know, who do I answer to first that, that superior or the bishop in whose diocese I reside. And, you know, this tension between monastic, um, sort of monastic self-determination and Episcopal authority is one that will, again, you know, be a challenge at various moments in, in church history all the way up to, to the present day. So, uh, before we move to the West and look at, at um, Cashin and St. Benedict, you know, this early period in the development of, uh, you know, the hermits and the monastic life, you know, saw some rather unusual um, you know, practices of austerity, especially like in the, in the Middle East. Um, it seems possible that the, the desert tradition, you know, maybe was influenced by other, other, other um, religious traditions and, and um, you know, they had, again, some sort of unusual um, practices. So in one example is 
um, living the, the life of an animal and simply um, living in the open air without shade, like in a field and eating on just, just feeding on grass. Right. So these are the first holy vegans. Um, I think there was a problem with them because they wouldn't stop telling everybody that they met about their diet. No, I'm just kidding. If you're vegan, God bless. I got no problem with it. Do what you do. I'm fine. Um, but anyway, so they, what's that? Be careful when you talk about vegans. I've been one for 50 years. There you go. No, 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 no right. criticism. Do what works. That's my, my deal. You're getting sensitive. Life of an animal, Bob. That's the important thing, Rob. Um, so, so that was one thing. The other one, um, a, a very common mortification or, or sort of form of penance, um, that these monks would employ was to wear like heavy iron chains around them and like to make it very difficult to move. They would like tie them around their waist and over their shoulders. This kind of reminds me, I don't know if anyone will know what I'm talking about of like certain sort of workout bro youtube videos of like you know bodybuilders in the gym doing pull-ups with these chains around their waist like weighted pull-ups i don't know i'm gonna pretend that maybe like two of you know what i'm talking about but anyway you know just the point is to make it really um severe like to make life difficult that, that you're gonna walk around and live you know in this state of kind of permanent distress and then the final um well, there are others I could mention, but a, a final sort of practice that was um, utilized was the, um, the practice of living on a column, like these columns that existed in the desert. They're often called the stylite. And so you have um, these monks that would go out and just, they would just camp out on top of the column. People would bring them food um, occasionally. Otherwise, um, otherwise that was that, you know, that was their life. Uh, the fa most famous one is a guy that lived in C uh, modern day Syria. His name is Simon or, or Simeon. Um, see it both ways. So he, his, uh, like sometimes it's like Simon, the stylite or Simeon, the stylite. What's interesting about it is the 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 hermits who did this who, who lived on these columns there was another very famous one whose name was daniel um and i assure you given my restlessness that i was not named after uh, daniel the style but uh he was reputed to have lived on a column for 33 years outside of constantinople Oh, and I, I, I don't now. I, I can't remember, but I don't think I mentioned this. Uh, I was about to say that, that the, the men who did this were, and I think it was uniformly men. I can't think of an example of a of female. I mean, the females, uh, women will get into monastic communities fairly early as well, but not so much uh, the sort of hermit ideal. But um, the, those who did this were revered by the people as being sort of extraordinarily holy people. And so even if they didn't have a particular, you know, pedigree or educational background, they were viewed as um, essentially as living saints. So 
just to give you a, like a very concrete example uh, around Simon or Simeon, you know, out there perched on his column, the government, the imperial government, ordered both rep- representatives at both the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon, so the 431 and the 451, uh, said, "Run this by Simon. You know, show show the show the creed to to the the guy on the column." Um, again, it was an imperial sort of directive that before the council concluded its business, they they kind of get the stamp of approval from from this you know man who is presumed to be you know possessing extraordinary holiness. Any questions about sort of Eastern monasticism, either the sort of isolated lone version or the beginnings of the or community ideal. So moving to the West, um, the person who's arguably the, the one most sort of responsible for the development of uh, the monastic tradition in Western Christianity, <laughs> much to his chagrin, I feel bad for the guy, is John Cashin. And I say that because, I mean, it's Benedict is the Benedict of Nursia is the, is the one that everyone thinks of a sort of founder of religious orders and, you know, monastic life in the West and all this stuff. And Benedict was great. Like, don't get me wrong. And we'll talk about him in a second. But uh, John Cashin was um, somebody who had spent a lot of time as a monk in the East, in like Egypt and uh, in the Holy Land in various monasteries. And he came sort of back across the Roman Empire. He spent some time in Constantinople and then eventually makes it to Rome and then uh, modern day, uh, yeah, what we think is roughly a modern day Marseille Marseille in France. Um, And he organized a number of communities at various, you know, various stops on his journey in, you know, what we would call today Italy and France. And these were communities of both men and women, not mixed, to be clear, but separate communities for, for men and separate communities for women. Um, and you know, he, he really brought with him most of what he had learned from the, the Eastern model, especially Basil, around things like um, you know, having a rule and, and having set you know, routine and structure to the day. Um, in, in one word, he lays out, you know, the proper habit, uh, you know, this the certain clothing that they'll, everyone will wear the habit, um, as well as a kind of, uh, liturgical schedule for the day. Like, this is how the monks will pray every day. Like, this is the rhythm by which, or with which they'll, they'll pray. He also wrote a um, a series of conferences, which were kind of like reflections on um, mostly on the Eastern tradition and how that could be, you know, the spirituality almost, in other words, of monasticism. He was, you know, very um, influential proponent of. Cashin was um, 
you know, in some ways, like Basil of Caesarea was was a very balanced, um, had a very balanced perspective in how he thought about this. So, you know, he was aware of some of these extreme examples um, that that existed. But for Cashin, the thing that was most important was, you know, besides holiness, in terms of structuring monastic life, was was restraint, moderation, and obedience. So Cashin, again, laid very much laid the groundwork in the West for monastic life and gave it, you know, a number of sort of practical guidelines, but also some spiritual reflections um, that, that were very influential. Just to give you an idea, again, um, Benedict, St. Benedict, uh, you know, in his rule directed the Cashin's conferences, you know, these sort of talks that he gave that were written down were to be read before Compline in, in, you know, the, the Benedictine monasteries. So let's turn now to Benedict of Nursia or Norcia, sometimes spelled, you know, the Italian way, N-O-R-C-I-A. I think the thing that's, that's important to understand about Benedict, the, you know, the historical figure, is that he was really pursuing sort of the monastic ideal um, by way of a kind of simple and self-disciplined, you know, organization and routine. So it was like simplicity and self-discipline were, were sort of hallmarks of his approach, not of overly penitential austerity and, you know, these dramatic self self-inflicted mortifications. So, you know, and the Benedictines got to do regular pull-ups. They didn't have to wear the chains when they did that. Um, simple and self-disciplined. Uh, he really was, uh, you know, focused pretty narrowly around the, um, the communities that he himself was personally involved with. And he he really tended to draw or, or, or seek out people who were simple people that didn't necessarily have, you know, educational backgrounds. They were sort of from the peasant class in many cases um, of Italian, you know, Italian cities or countryside, you know, type um, location. For uh, for Benedict, his his um, his take was that you know they needed to be able to the monks need to be able to read enough in order to um, do the, read their, you know, read their devotion, say their prayers and stuff. Um, but other than that, it wasn't, you know, his, his plan that they be particularly well-educated. He saw them going about um, what he called the work of God or Opus Dei, which, you know, isn't a direct, I mean, I know there's a modern movement called Opus Dei, but like, for Benedict, this was just like the work of the monks uh, who, who live, you know, in community. This was the work they did, and you know, it was practical work, right? It was farming and 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 cleaning and cooking and and, and the kinds of tasks that needed to be done. He very much structured the monastery as a kind of family, 
and the abbot was the authority figure, was really like the father, um, the abbot. And so, uh, you know, that, that was the sort of authority structure. He also thought that monks, the, you know, the monks by and large should stay in their own, in their own uh, monastery, that there shouldn't be a lot of movement. The point was a kind of settled, stable, um, living out of one's life, you know, in the presence of God. I mean, I think that cut, and, and, and you know, he wrote the, the rule of Benedict, which is, I don't know if you've had a, a reason or it's been assigned in other classes. It's very readable. Um, like it's, it's an easy thing to read. Like the little chapters with each of the rules are essentially like pretty short and you can move through it pretty quickly. You know, it, it, there's a lot of like practical stuff about the routines of the monk, but then also, um, you know, how, how do you handle guests and like what's hospitality look like and, and this kind of thing. Um, and so it, it's very, you know, easy to read and, and that what, what's interesting about Benedict is he you know, is associated in the West, especially with sort of religious life, with religious orders, that the Benedictines were sort of the first religious order that then spawned, um, you know, countless others that, that we have today. And then especially, or, or even more so, I should say, the Benedictines tend to be sort of associated with medieval learning and, and, you know, copying texts during the, you know, the early Middle Ages and preserving important texts and, and then getting involved in educational endeavors and this kind of scholarly, these types of scholarly pursuits. I think it's, you know, worth pointing out, not to say that, you know, he's not important for, you know, man, many good reasons, but Benedict himself seemed to have no, no intention of of having this kind of influence to the extent that we know, you know, we think about religious orders as like a, an affiliated network of houses that are all connected. Um, it, 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 he, it, there's not really evidence that he was trying to establish something like that. He assisted in the establishment of, you know, a number of monasteries, uh, where, where they would all live, you know, where the monks could live together in a sort of a common way of life. And that was that he didn't have sort of in mind, uh, this sort of systematic approach to monastic life that we think of when we think of religious orders, those who can, in, in future in sort of in later centuries, those who do kind of systematize, um, uh, monastic life, religious life often do so utilizing his rule, the rule of Benedict, because it was just particularly good and well done and like applicable to, you know, a lot of different situations. And it could serve as kind of a benchmark as an instruction manual for how to do it. And so, you know, while we have like the Benedictine order and, and, and a lot of other orders in the early church that are sort of, that follow the rule of Benedict, Benedict himself did not set out to do that. It was simply, you know, his influence, his lasting influence led him into that kind of association with, with religious orders and sort of the life of, um, religious communities in the church. 
but during during his life, you know, his concern was much sort of nar- more narrowly focused. And, and and like he was not to the extent that Benedictines are often associated with this like educational role or scholarly role in the Middle Ages, copying texts and the scriptorium and, and all of this kind of thing. Benedict thought, again, in his life, his instruction was that that the monks should be educated enough to be able to read their prayer. It was not, it was not um, anything beyond that. And it's similar to, you know, the Jesuits with Ignatius Loyola. Uh, you know, Ignatius, his main thing was like this fourth vow of obedience to the Pope. And, and he really kind of wanted to be a missionary order. Um, but it was really whatever the, the Pope needed. He, thought he wanted the Jesuits to be involved with. Um, and it wound up being the case that there were a number, I mean, and then soon a, a lot more uh, in, in number of, of educational institutions that the Jesuits, you know, wound up um, running. And so people think, oh, Ignatius started out, you know, with this goal in mind of creating a religious order that would be a leader in, in education. It turns out that Ignatius actually really just wanted to create um, a religious order that could, could create colleges that were good at college basketball. That was the real goal um, in 1540. So, you know, you have Creighton and you have Loyola and um, I don't even, there aren't that many good Jesuit schools this year. Gonzaga. Um, Gonzaga, of course, number one. Uh, Fairfield. Who? Fairfield. Are they in the tournament? I own it to speak them. It used to be no, it's it's um it is one of those sort of happenstances, if you will. I mean, on a serious point, like Ignatius wasn't trying to found an educational order, um, that wasn't his design at all. Um, but it sort of played out that way. And similarly, Benedict of Nursia wasn't trying to found sort of a religious order in the way we think of it as a kind of broad, like big organization, a network of of monasteries. He, he was his sites were much more or his objectives were much more modest, um, but his influence is undoubtedly um, quite important. Any questions on that? Yes, is uh, that why the Jesuit teacher, uh, uh, priests are taller? <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. Unless, if you're short, then if you pass like the point guard drill test, you can get, you can get it admitted. That would have been my only chance. Um, I'm torn here because, yeah, let's let's pause. Um, I, I guess we can start. Um, I could start the life of the like the the top of the next outline, but it feels like maybe it's just as well. Um, it's my clocks are competing a little bit right now because of daylight savings time. So my computer says one thing, and the other clock I can see says something two minutes different. So I think should we say it's eight oh eight? Okay, so let's come back at eight twenty five. Thanks, everyone. What, what he calls the third age of the church after the second age of the church is the age of the fathers. He called the dark ages. Um, I think um, he may have gotten some feedback, negative feedback around that um, terminology. And that's frankly feedback that I would share. I mean, when we were using the text, it was an opportunity for me to kind of go on a a bit of a rant, which I'll try not to do here, around the use of the term 
Dark Ages because I think um, it's a, you know, it's an unfortunate term. It was kind of created by, well, we'll see uh, towards the Renaissance. It was a term of derision used to sort of criticize the the past ages. Um, but it, it's one that doesn't, I don't think, really hold up if you look at what what developments, what kind of things are, are going on. I mean, I think there's a, a kind of sense that, well, you know, you had the glories of the Roman Empire and then the barbarians took over and now, you know, plunged, plunged the West into the Dark Ages. But as we'll see, um, these Germanic tribes, the so-called barbarians, had a number of, you know, things that they contributed to to the West, including, um, you know, various systems of law that, you know, were event would eventually kind of augment the existing body of Roman law. Um, you know, for, for example, you know, there's a sort of caricature that, that during the Dark Ages, like all of these tribes, it was just like willy-nilly kind of chaos that, uh, you know, the force was just simply you know, imposing order and that, you know, there was really no structure to the society or, or what have you. But like, just to give one very specific example, the, the Lombards who were a, a group that, you know, again, had origins like so-called barbarian origins outside of the Roman empire eventually moved in and then wound up sort of settling in Northern Africa. No, Northern Italy. Geez, sorry. Northern Italy, the region today is known as Lombardy, but the Lombards, they had their own developed system of law that, that they, they, they created, implemented and lived by. Um, the mere, like the mere existence of such a thing suggests that there's a certain amount of civilization in place. And I think, you know, too often, I mean, when we look at the Carolingian Renaissance, Charlemagne and and, um, and, you know, the court he put together and the educational insights, you know, it's just not a sort of, I think, comprehensive or, or a read of the, of the era that takes everything into account, which is all a long way of saying, if you want a surefire way to have points deducted on your final exam, go ahead and call this era the Dark Ages. Um, can, we, can we call it medieval times? No. Yeah, medieval times, yes. But early Middle Ages and later Middle Ages is kind of how I settled. But before we get back to the political story, which is really going to be the story of the so-called, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire and the invasion of the various Germanic tribes, the so-called barbarians, um, I, I kind of wanted to just once again quickly survey the, you know, the situation, the life of the church, where, where it is about uh, 400 years in, let's say, or 450 years in, in terms of the development of the structure and, you know, sacraments and, 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 and piety and all of that stuff, because, you know, what we see is that there are, there are some major shifts that occur once it's no longer, you know, effectively illegal to be a Christian. And so, 
you know, in, in some ways, there a lot of the, the early stuff we already talked about in Tertullian and Hippolytus and and others that you know wrote prayers that were incorporated into the liturgy. A lot of that continues on, but it's just able to you know sort of expand and flourish in particular ways once it becomes not just legal, but eventually once it becomes mandatory to be Christian. Um, but first, let's, let's sort of look at the the structure, if you will, of of the church, you know, at, at roughly around the you know, 400s, mid 400s, somewhere in there. Um, you know, the role and the importance <clears throat> of the bishop continues to be more and more um, important and, and, and sort of central to the administration of the church. They controlled... Um, you know, they essentially controlled the flow of funds to, you know, every everything and everyone within the church. They continued to use, in these early centuries, you know, they continued to rely upon the assistance of um, deacons who would serve in many cases as, like, administrators um, and also in, in, in the distribution of alms and, and uh, assistance to the poor. But the the structure again kind of comes into increasing clarity around a kind of I think I said this before, but just to <coughs> emphasize, like a kind of hierarchical, uh, a monarchical. There we go, uh, episcopal uh, episcopal structure where the bishop is essentially, you know, like the king of his diocese. He controls not just the the finances essentially, but also the the movement of clergy. Um, you know, from at least the, well, uh, after the Council of Nicaea, it, it came into effect that clergy, and this would include, you know, deacons and priests, could not, um, could not leave their diocese with, without the consent of the bishop. So again, there's like, a, even from very early days, a kind of attachment to the authority of the bishop. Also, in, in increasing, um, Emphasis on holding regular gatherings, the synods that you know we see so many examples of, and they would be hold, be held pretty regularly. In some instances, in some in some dioceses, they were held as regularly as twice a year, which is um, you know quite quite frequent. Um, we mentioned during the section on Constantine all of the privileges he sort of. Um, extended to the church, and that would have a, a, a tremendous impact on the growth of like what I might call the structural church. So he exempted clergy from taxation. And also enabled, um, enabled the sort of corporate recognition of the church so that property could be, you know, bequeathed and then passed on and, you know, donations could be given that sort of built up the, the, the holdings of the church. One of the consequences, not in Constantine's time, but, you know, later on, um, into like the 400s, so like past the, past the fourth century into the fifth century, there was a, it seems like there was a concerted effort to recruit priests especially you know because they were, they were more numerous um 
from the lower sort of socioeconomic classes because, um, I mean, it it's maybe sounds hard to believe, but there was a concern of the, on the part of the government that the exemption from taxation could wind up costing them too much money if too many well-to-do um, individuals like join the clergy. And, and again, this could include becoming a deacon. And so um, there was a real preference for sort of finding um, clergy from the lower, more like a lower socioeconomic classes. It's not always the case. Like St. Ambrose is a great exception to this rule and that he came from a pretty well-to-do background and obviously achieved great things. But by and large, like looking out across, like in general, a survey of the, the church at this time, you know, most of the priests and that you would have you know, encountered it in different places in the East and West would have been very simple um, from, from, from kind of lower, lower income socioeconomic ranks and, and, not, and not have a ton of education. Um, uh, there's a number of decrees that, that are issued around like church governance. Um, again, many of which brought into clarity the, the, the power of the bishop. So for example, by the end of the 400s, there's a, a kind of guide that, that all ecclesiastical income for a diocese should be divided into quarters. And so it's, you know, 25% goes for the bishop's use, 25% in total gets distributed to all of the other clergy, um, 25% for the sort of the upkeep of the church facilities, like the administration and everything, you know, getting a new boiler and all that, and then uh, 25% for the poor. So the bishop was in charge of that, but, you know, had quite a, um, quite a, um, you know, broad latitude in, in using the, the funds that were collected from you know, all the fish fries and bingo. Um, okay, like three, three people are still with me based on the reactions to that one. Um, so the, um, oh, around the issue of the clergy, just in general, the clergy, um, in this early period, we start to see a, a, a divergence between practice in the East and West around uh, celibacy and so um you know there was obviously a sense that that clergy whether they be a deacon or a priest or bishop should be moral examples to you know to christians to their to their especially for priests and bishops who are like sort of in charge in a particular way over congregations they should be moral examples and and sort of the the interpretation of, you know, some of the New Testament that, that prized um, celibacy as a holier form of life, of Christian life, uh, you know, suggested that maybe this was something that ought to be characteristic of the clergy. And the West, uh, but sort of the Western half of the church, settled on, uh, you know, the discipline of celibacy much earlier than the East. Just for example, um, we mentioned Leo the first, Leo the Great, Pope Leo, um, when we were talking about uh, Helsinki and um, you know Leo's tome and everything. 
he's a great preacher and, and, and all of that. He also, uh, for example, had had um, maintained, and it's it's doubtful that this extended much beyond Rome at the time, but but nonetheless, you get the point that that not just not just um, so there were a number of orders of of clergy that included not just priests and deacons, but even subdeacons. Now today, well, in modern times, a subdeacon is a kind of liturgical role that exists. Um, it seems likely that um, in the early church, the subdeacon role, to the extent that we can say with confidence, had a maybe both liturgical, but then also like an assistant administrative function. Nevertheless, um, it's just like another derivation, if you will, of, of the clergy. Leo held that even even down through subdeacons, subdeacons, deacons, priests, bishops, should uh, celibacy, celibacy should be maintained. Um, now again, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that, that was like the widespread uniform practice, but there were places where, um, especially in the West, where it was insisted upon, um, you know, by the by the four hundreds. It won't come to be sort of unif universally enforced in the West until a couple centuries later, but the West, the Western half of the Church, if you will. Um, you know, by the 400s and onward, certainly has a greater portion of the clergy that, of the priests, especially that observe celibacy. The practice in the East developed in the way from like the 500s on that we still recognize today, which is that celibacy is required for a bishop. This is still true in the Eastern Church today. Celibacy uh, is required for a bishop. But, but priests and you know, other clergy, but especially priests, can marry before ordination. And again, still the case, so something that, you know, again, probably you all know, but it's worth saying just because it's such a popular sort of thing to talk about, like at various moments we hear about you know, conversations about can, can priests get married? Um, and, you know, people say, oh, in the early church, priests could get married and whatever. That's that's imprecise, and we should you know clarify. The issue isn't could priests get married. The issue is could married men be ordained priests. And I mean, I think that's something that we saw recently in the, with the synod on the Amazon, and you know, have uh, there's been conversations around this. Um, you know, that's still the practice in the East that that married men can can be ordained, but it's not the practice that once ordained a priest. Even in the Eastern Church, you know, at any point in time, once once you receive ordination to the priesthood, uh, you, at that point would not be able to marry. Rob, there's uh, two questions on that. There there are currently about 200 married Catholic priests in the United States. Um, they were priests that mostly either came from Lutheran or the Episcopal background. They still had to go through seminary, but the fact is that they followed more the diaconate concept right when they went into it, so they were allowed to uh, continue. And so, you know, it, at least, if sensibly, this kind of flies in the face of celibacy being a requirement as far as being a priest is concerned. You know, and um, I, I've got a number of friends of mine that are that are are priests that resent the fact that some of their brethren can be married and have families and stuff like that, and they can't. 
that was number one. And number two is that one of the things that I remember from studying from before was that the issue of celibacy, as far as the church was concerned, also had a major part to do with the conveyance of church property. That if somebody was married with a family, first of all, they're going to acquire asset. They've got children that are going to be heirs to their property and so forth. And that the church was, was, was having a problem and also concerned with the fact that the uh, they were losing control or they were losing grip on the church property. Now, also having said it along with that is that the majority of your early, the period of time you're talking about your parish priests, uh, they didn't know Latin. They were even educated. They, they were, somebody taught them how to say the mass, but that was about as far as they could go. This was before the uh, seminaries really fell into uh, stature. Okay, I'll shut up after that. But it, but it yeah, just, no, that's that's. I think those are all good points. You're right to, to highlight the issue around around um, <clears throat> property and 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 how that would work. I mean, I think you know the key moment was in the fourth century when it became you know pretty pretty common throughout the empire to recognize a sort of corporate existence for the church, um, even in places where you would have um, you know, married men uh, who, who were ordained, you know, there would be some way, I, I'd have to go back and check to see exactly how it was handled specifically, but like the, the assets that, that, you know, were um, attached to a given congregation, let's say like, you know, here's the church and here's our, you know, um, our farm that we, you know, are able, that somebody donated to us when they died. Um, you know that te- that would st- there was a system in place such that that would stay attached to the church, but I believe there was some mechanism for ensuring for the you know the um, the care, if you will, the material provision of of the next generation um, to some degree. But you know, to the first point, you're right. There there are there is this possibility that exists today. I, I think the way it's commonly talked about, I don't. I don't <laughs> I don't have anything particularly, you know, different or, or, or insightful to add. I mean, celibacy is, is sort of in the category of a discipline. It's clearly not an essential aspect, a sine qua non of being a priest that one be celibate, as evidenced by the fact that, as you say, there are priests who are who are married. Not just that, but even, um, uh, how to say this carefully, Eastern rites that are in communion with Rome follow the Eastern practice right so when i was at catholic university in washington you know there are a number of different like seminaries around that neighborhood and one of them i think it was like the ukrainian the ukrainian orthodox the ukrainian catholic right um where so they're in communion with the pope um but they like their liturgy is very eastern and, and all of that um and those seminarians could get married before ordination, I mean, I would, I mean, I had class with them, and like we, we would talk about like how it's kind of unusual to be in this like mix of um, of students, where like for some some guys that were you know Latin Rite Catholics and, and studying seminary that were in like the master's program, let's say, you know that wasn't an option. But then those that were part of um, Eastern Rite Catholics, in other words, in communion with the church, that was still an option. So it's clearly not an essential component 
of the priesthood that, that one maintains celibacy, but it's been determined that it's it's a, a, a practice, a discipline that is, you know, desirable, advantageous, um, you know, contributes to the well-being of the life of both the priest and the church um, and, and any number of other reasons. So, yeah, it's not, so let's, we should draw a distinction, and this applies to both West and East, you know, as far as the episcopacy is concerned, there wouldn't be any grounding for a bishop who was married. Uh, that that I mean, I'm not talking about like, oh, well, Peter had a, you know, what, what about Peter's wife? You know, I'm not talking about like what happened with the apostles. I'm talking about the tradition of the church as it grew as a sort of organic institution. There wouldn't be grounds for a married episcopate, but there could be could be ground. I mean, there has been, you know, for uh, for centuries, a uh, 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 clergy who were who were married prior to ordination. So it's a distinction. Again, I, I think for a number of reasons now, it's it's a thorny issue. It comes up, you know, as you know, Rob, you know, Rob, as you're mentioning, for some people, but even today now, there's also a practical, there's a practical dilemma, right? We, we're, we're facing a shortage of priests, you know, in like, in the Western world, so to speak. Um, but also the cost of, you know, to diocese of maintaining priests is, is already fairly expensive. And, you know, we always have second collections and special collections for priest retirement. And it's not cheap. Dioceses are, you know, are, are in many cases hard up for money. And the, the practical sort of logistical challenge of supporting now not just the priest, but potentially, you know, family, kids in, in a situation where, um, you know, the church is, I mean, I, I think we all have an awareness is, is struggling in, in certain parts of again, the Western world, and there's a lot of contraction and financial difficulty. Um, again, not to say that that should make the decision one way or another, but I think, um, you know, it's it's going to continue to be sort of talked about in a live option as long as the, um, the pipeline of future seminarians remains somewhat somewhat weak. I mean, I, I think there are, again, there are regions in this country where that's not the case, and there are regions like ours where it is. So, you know, how you how you come to a conclusion about that um, will probably depend. But from a historical perspective, let's try and bring it back home here. Uh, from a historical perspective, it, there has been a tradition in both ways, uh, you know, in terms of having priests who were married and not. I would say, though, that the tradition of sort of prizing celibacy belongs much more to the West than the East. And even if it took, you know, a few more centuries beyond the 400s for it to become more universalized in the West, um, it was certainly it was certainly gaining momentum, you know, uh, from a very early early stage. Go ahead, Rob. Uh, I'm just going to say one one thing too. It, it extends to the diaconate also because when I was ordained, the uh, there were two of us that were not married. And along with the vows that we took, we, we had to take vows of celibacy. Yeah. I mean, so even as deacons, we don't have the option of getting married. Okay. If you were married when you were ordained, you could stay married. But if you weren't, you do, you could not get married in church. Hmm. Thank you for adding that. Excellent. That's a warning from the brothers out there. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, let's turn to um sacraments here uh, somewhat briefly 
Um, baptism and confirmation, you know, I think I had, have already commented the sort of the early, there's evidence that we've discovered of early texts and, and writings that have a Trinitarian formula for baptism. I mean, this goes back to, um, you know, Tertullian around 200 and, and even earlier, late, late second century. Um, and so, you know, what we see though in these early, um, in these early texts is that there's not perfect sort of uniformity, um, as to the process beyond the, the, the Trinitarian formula and the use of water, um, you know, the, in some instances, what we see from like the third, fourth and fifth centuries, like the baptismal rite includes a declaratory creed, um, in other cases, um, you know, depending on, on where we were after the, the, um, baptism, the, the candidate, if you will, was bat was, uh, anointed with oil and then hands were laid on him. Some places this was extended to the reception of milk and honey as sort of right tokens into the uh, uh, tokens of entry into the promised land. Um, and so, but, but again, not, it's not uniform, uniformly like administered everywhere that every, every city, every diocese, if you will, did it exactly the same way. Um, certainly through the, you know, the four hundreds of five hundreds, the preference preference was for baptism to be um, was for baptism to be performed by the bishop. Now, um, as the church grows, and especially as we get beyond, you know, Constantine and the sort of legal expand, like yeah, legal expansion of the church, this becomes very difficult, if not impracticable. So the um you know the ability to to baptize is also something that was extended to in the absence of a bishop um the priest or the deacon the um the sort of the combination of by the fourth by the yeah by, by the fifth century by the 400s um, according to the various sort of sources that we've looked, you know, we can look at, it seems pretty common that the baptismal rite included an exorcism as part of it, you know, casting out, um, the casting out of demons prior to being, you know, reborn into, um, a new life. Um, and so, you know, the ritual itself tended to, again, have the exorcism, then the, the actual baptism, and then an anointing with oil and a laying on with hand, a lay, laying on of hands. Now another difference. Um, I mean, I just mentioned the one with celibacy, but another difference is going to emerge in the you know this period, like four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, so you know, and thereabouts, in the administration of this sacrament and how they understood the the sort of key the key um sign or, or sort of action that conferred membership beyond the baptism so the the um the right had the baptism of water and then the anointing with oil and laying on of hands 
So we would recognize those latter two as the form for confirmation, right? So it was done all together in in the early um, in the early church and in east and west they put different uh, a sort of different point of emphasis on which of the actions was more uh, sort of I don't want to say important because they thought all of it was important but was more central to conferring the the sacrament itself of uh, conferring membership in the church in the so. The, this is sort of a practical problem that emerges when you have to del when bishops have to delegate this task to um, to priests mostly, but all, but also deacons because there are now just so many so many Christians, so many um, churches, and so in the East they thought that the chief sort of sign in the in the post baptismal like initiation was the anointing with oil, right? So they thought the oil, um, that was really the key to sort of to the confirmation of that individual into full membership in the church. And as a result, they thought that as long, I mean, that, the, that it was permissible for the priest to perform the entirety of the ceremony and use the oil because it had been blessed by the bishop because the, the bishop blesses all the oils, right, at Easter time and, and all of that. And so so in the East, the tradition grew whereby priests administer the, the sacrament of confirmation because they're using the, the blessed oil of the bishop because they see that anointing as still being, as still being tied to the bishop. In the West, um, the tradition sort of developed that the action that was seen as sort of more significant was the the laying on of hands, the sort of actual physical laying on of hands, um, and you know, as successor to the apostles, the idea was that only the bishop could do this. And unlike with you know oils that are blessed, it's it's hard to figure out how you sort of transfer that that symbolism or that that sign um, outside of the bishop himself actually performing it. And so um, this leads to just for practicality's sake, you can't have a bishop everywhere, right? This leads to the separation in the West of um, baptism from confirmation, because you know they could the priests could perform baptisms, um, but in the West they could not perform confirmation. Uh, it had to be the bishop who laid hands, and you know it was often there was often large gaps of time between when bishop could get to a given. Place. And so um, it, it gets separated in the West, although it, it's a long time before there's any real guidelines. It's several centuries before there are any real guidelines around the appropriate, you know, age or the way it has to be done. Um, you know, that after you, you know, you're, I don't know, there's a, there's a range in the United States this day, that's for sure. You know, whether you're in sixth grade or eighth grade or 11th grade, um, it, it varies, but at this point in time, it was really more a function of how the symbolism of the action was um, was interpreted. And in the East, they kind of kept the, the sacraments of initiation intact, uh, like, I mean, connected to each other. And in the West, because of the importance of the bishop's presence and the practicality that that's not always possible when you want to do baptisms, um, 
they became they became separated. So um, again, that's another difference in practice between east and west. And, and again, you know, to go back to the you know example of um, set the like the seminarians and how they're you know east, eastern right um, churches that are in communion with Rome still maintain some of these practices that are different from the the more you know widespread latin rites so i don't know if any of you well i don't know maybe maybe some of you are yourselves um maronite catholic have you heard of maronites they're they're um mostly based although there are some in this country right they're mostly based in lebanon uh maronite maronite catholic maronite christians however you want to say it so they're either based in lebanon or of lebanese descent typically they're in communion with uh with rome you know they recognize the authority of the pope and to this day if you're born like a baby born into you know to a lebanese family at a maronite parish will receive all three sacraments of initiation as a baby at once from the priest so the third the third right being eucharist and so there's no they do it with a little spoon and they don't wait um so the east the eastern church in general and this includes some eastern traditions that are now in communion with rome has maintained the in, intactness of the um intactness of the sacraments of initiation where in the west they've become separated and now in the west we have this issue where you know the way it sort of used to be was that it would be baptism then confirmation in the same in the same sort of ritual followed by eucharist because you were fully a member once you were confirmed once the bishop had laid hands on you and you've been anointed with oil you were fully a member and the understanding of the eucharist was that it was sort of open to participation only by those who were fully members and so um there's a push and there's a handful of american dioceses that where this is the case to, to go back to what they call restoring the order right of the sacraments where you would move confirmation back before communion and you would do it much much earlier sometime between baptism as an infant let's say and before you receive your first communion at what are you nine normally third grade something like that eight or nine um seven someplace i'm not sure uh, eight the age of reason is right considered seven so technically it could be any time after that but um the 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 thing that this idea of restoring the order of the sacraments is nodding towards is that historically the sacraments that initiated you into the church went baptism confirmation communion historically they also used to be kind of all together and over time for various reasons that that split apart and, and became separated and um and you know we have the practice that we have today and that's again it's it's not a to say that one's better or worse or, or whatever, it's just to note sort of the development, right, of sacramental practice over the course of, of centuries. Um, let me just say one last thing about confirmation before I stop and see if anybody has questions or comments. So uh, my guess, again, as many of you will know, um, this idea about um, the catechumenate as sort of like a period of preparation for um, full membership into the church. And, and it was like, uh, you know, like when we have RCIA now, right, it's, it's sort of this process of bringing people through the catechumenate to prepare them for 
um, confirmation for full initiation into the church. So it was like, like the preliminary membership, if you will, as you continue to learn and, and grow. And what's really fascinating about it is because the way politically and sort of the trickle down effects of some of these political changes, the catechumen has a sort of, I don't know, like a, a kind of whiplash experience um, in the, you know, fourth and fifth centuries, especially. So it was, you know, there were in the first, second, third century, you know, even into the, into the early fourth century, there was certainly a process of initiation and catechumen in a preparatory period. But because Christianity was undergoing persecution and, you know, a lot of places it was dangerous or prohibited, this was never really like, you know, a huge, huge systematized um, sort of part of the church, uh, the church's life. But after we get, uh, you know, Constantine's um, loosening of things and, and then favoritism, and as we move forward through the 300s, let's say, from 320 to 400, the catechumenate expands, it becomes very important because there's, there are a lot of conversions from, by adults, um, you know, and, and it's now the emperor is a, a Christian and others are Christian and it seems to be like desirable to be Christian and there are benefits to being Christian. And so the catechumenate sort of expands and there's this, this, you know, development of the process and how long and, you know, how you're initiated at Easter time and, and all of this stuff. Um, but after about, you know, maybe two generations, maybe three into the early 400s, you know, a generation past um, Theodosius making it, making Christianity, um, making Christianity the official religion of the, the Roman Empire, you know, two generations after that, the assumption was that everyone was was a Christian from birth, that you were baptized essentially as a baby. And so the catechumenate kind of disappears. Um, you know, that's one of the, I think, you know, one of the really important contributions of uh, Vatican II and, and the aftermath has been the recovery um, of, of the catechumenate and an understanding of it. But, you know, once we get to the early 400s, mid 400s for sure, the catechumenate kind of becomes um, obsolete in a way because it was just, there was a generational expectation that you would, you would be a Christian. Um, and, and as I say, it was legally required too. So that, that kind of helped um, ensure, ensure that that was the case. So I do want I do like to note that because it's, it's really tied to the, kind of political developments that there's this brief period where the catechumenate's kind of exploding in the 300s. Um, and then by the time we're at midway through the 400s, let's say, it's kind of disappearing because there's nobody as an adult that's really coming, you know, to, to, to convert Christianity. They've, they've already been Christians their whole life. Okay. Let me pause. Any questions about, um, any of this stuff post the break, the, Clergy, the, the development of the structure of the clergy and baptism confirmation. Any questions? Great. Um, so, the, obviously, in addition to baptism, mass, um, you know, was was the key, key uh, sacrament, or Eucharist was the key sacrament. But the sort of development of the 
worship of the church, including um, the the liturgy, you know, is is something that I think it's fair to say picks up picks up speed after you know the the end of persecutions and the the opening up to you know public practice of Christianity that we see in the in the three hundreds. Again, in the early church, like in the in the catacomb days, in the in the um, persecuted days, certainly Easter and Pentecost were you know key key celebrations. Um, the the biggest um, well, and and even even in these early centuries, the observance of Holy Week was um, you know likely likely uh, an, an important part of. Christian communities in, in most of the Roman Empire that there was sort of special um, special preparation for for Easter um, by the fourth century also uh, early fourth century you also have the addition of the Feast of the Ascension Feel like I should make a joke about whether the early bishops were arguing about transferring it to Sunday or not, but let's just leave that one alone. Um, but the key thing that gets added in, uh, you know, that really becomes a part of the life of the church liturgically, as, as far as liturgical seasons, um, is the the um, celebration of Christ's birth uh, and, and Christmas, which I can't remember now whether I, I just referenced in passing or not something that was coming up in the in the fourth century, but um, it's worth saying. You know, there's some debate. Certainly, um, I think there's consensus that by the mid 300s, by the mid fourth century, like 353, 354, um, celebration of Christmas is taking place in in the Church of Rome um, and, and in other places as well. Other scholars think as early as like the mid 330s, um, you know, the, the celebration of Christmas on December 25th was um, was was practiced. But I don't know. It's ambiguous, and, and I think the the more settled consensus is by like the mid by the 350s or so. Um, and from Rome and and cities around Rome, it kind of spread outward, and it moved um, pretty quickly by by like 380 or so most of the um certainly in constantinople and other cities sort of in the eastern half of the church it was it was um celebrated so it kind of moved west west to east um the rationale you know for why adding the the celebration of christmas on december 25th you know it's not like somebody it's not like the church got together and wrote down the reason and like we have a document i think there's a kind of you know, I don't know if Dan Brown actually said this, but he deserves any criticism, even if it's not him directly. There's a kind of like critic of Christianity or skeptic who says, well, you know, basically Christianity was just co-opting paganism. And so the fact that there's a feast celebrating this pagan sun god Sol Invictus on December 25th, the Christians were just um, sort of co-opting that. I, I mean, that's not from a historical perspective. I mean, there's just very little evidence for that. Um, what you see in the in the theologians in, in this time in the early church, sort of in theological writings that that maybe give what I think is the strongest justification justification is um, in the ancient world, 
it was well two two possibilities one there was a certain interpretation of um, Luke's gospel which um, held Jesus to be exactly 30 years old at baptism and working back from when they sort of marked the feast of his baptism they they get to this number 25th um, date but the other one and I think again you know based on it, it appearing in a couple of early church fathers and in their theological reflection there was a sense in the um in the early church in the second and third century that the universe was created like god created the universe uh on the vernal equinox right on the first sort of on the first day of spring um which makes sense if you think about it you know even though it's kind of it, it's difficult to reason like how do we get the beginning of time um but if you're going to assign sort of the beginning of time to a particular moment on on the annual calendar the beginning of spring seems like you know as good a place as any to put it right spring is birth new life all that good stuff and even though uh, now you'll have to help me out i think now the vernal equinox is what 20th or the 21st anybody know one of those two days um it's, that's less important in the in the third century on the so-called julian calendar it's a different calendar than what we have now we have the gregorian calendar now it's a different calendar different way of reckoning the cycle of the the year the vernal equinox was march 25th so there was sort of a, a tradition and again it's like not like this was an article of faith but it was something that you know appears in writing stuff that the vernal equinox march 25th when um god began creation the, the the creation of the universe and so sort of taking the analogy of you know in one in some places it's christ as the new adam in other places you know it's just like christ as the new creation um the church fathers sort of held that it would only make sense that the new creation that the beginning of the new creation um sort of uh, comes into being on the same day, March 25th, and and then stretch it out nine months from there, and we have um, you know the birth on winter solstice, December 25th. Again, December 25th is no longer the winter solstice, but it was at the time, and and it had to do with like not, and it's not like winter solstice in like this sort of new agey pagan kind of way. It was simply you know this is this was part of their cosmology and how they understood the world. Um, and so the, the pattern of God creating the universe on, on March 25th and then the new creation um, taking form on March 25th, you know, was, was part of the reflection of some, some theologians and, and it made sense to a number of people. And since they, you know, didn't have 4D ultrasounds, but also had enough sense to realize that those, those babies don't come out of the womb from nowhere. Um, you know, they had a sense that, that nine months, um, you know, was the period and, and they celebrated the birth date, you know, the, the actual, um, sort of incarnation as a, as a child, um, on December 25th. Does that make sense? Everyone following that? Good. Um, yeah, again, there's, there's lots of evidence around the writings of, um, Gregory of Nazianzus and Chrysostom and others that that they learned it learned about it from the West 
from you know Rome and other Western churches, but by the 380, 370s, 380s, it had taken place, had taken hold in the as well. Um, so that's the major addition to the sort of liturgical calendar, of the seasons, um, in terms of a, a new and very important feast. Other things that that take shape, or, uh, well, another thing that does that's important for um, sort of seeing seeing the um, development of the, the life of, of faith, if you will, is um, practices around Lent as, as an extended period of time of 40 days prior to Easter or prior to Good Friday, however you want to take it, um, whereby um, not just Holy Week, right, but a whole season of preparation was, um, you know, became customary by, again, by the fourth and fifth centuries. Athanasius, you remember, Athanasius was banished five times or whatever, and he seems to have, one of his banishments when he was um, maybe in Rome, I can't remember which city he was in, in the West, um, where the Lenten practice of fasting and preparation was was closer to this 40 days period, and, and he was not accustomed to that. Uh, you know, he came back and was kind of embarrassed that the Eastern Church was so lax and so they ex- extended in a number of cities to, you know, so it was fairly uniform by the 500s that there was a, a Lenten period leading up to Easter that was more than just Holy Week. It's kind of ironic that, that the practices of austerity were more rigorous in the West. I mean, it's only ironic from my, from my perspective today because, like, the opposite is, is certainly seems to me true now. And, like, the West, the, the practices of austerity for Lent are like kind of minimal um and and in the eastern church again whether you're talking about orthodox where they they do give up not just meat but but all animal products for lent um and then they have you know some extended fast where there's an expectation you know it's 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 different today but in the in the early church the west you know had a more stringent routine the point here is simply that um simply that the idea, if you will, of Lent um, is something that comes into shape again, fourth century or so, and we have evidence that it's pretty wide in practice. And then the only thing, you know, the mass gets extended and expanded um, as we go, it, you know, even through well beyond this time, through the sixth, seventh, eighth centuries, you see, um, you know, prayers being being added. Um, it, it's not. It's not sort of a linear um, progression, if you will, but but the key thing, you know, for our where we are now, like you know, into the end of the fourth century and into the fifth century, is you know, in that period, similar to my remarks on the catechumenate, the the sort of secret portion of the mass starts to fall away. Because essentially everyone in a town, in a city, whatever, is fully initiated into the Christian community. So, in the you know in the in the 200s and the early 300s, there was sort of a two-part uh, liturgy, right, for for mass. You had the the litur- what we could call the liturgy of the word. You know, it was you know readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, Psalms, some singing, even some preaching. Um, 
and, and all of that. And then when you got, you know, to the end of that point, um, it was it was reserved for only those who were fully initiated to stay for the actual breaking of the bread, the sort of actual Eucharistic celebration. But and that that's maintained through the 300s through, through the fourth century. But by the time you get to the late fourth century and into the fifth century, there isn't really anyone uh, attending these who who isn't fully initiated. And so the sort of distinction of like the public versus private portion of the mass goes away. Um, again, what's not lost, and, and I think it's just worth reiterating because it goes back to ancient times, but you know, is maintained is is the reference to to the celebration as fundamentally um, Thanksgiving Eucharistia, and so this um, you know very much stays, and and, and it's in the. Yeah, I don't know if we know exactly when, but the Eucharistia is a Greek word that, that means Thanksgiving. Um, but it's it's copied into Latin. Like they don't even there's no Latin. Like it's a it's transliterated is right. That's the word fancy word for when you just take a word in another language and plop it into a different language. And so that's that's what they do um, because that's the best sort of understanding of what the mass is. Um, the only thing, the last thing I think I want to say about the development of the mass, you know, circa 400, is that it was not, and I think this is important because it's, it's not something we, you know, have experience with, you know, ourselves, if you will. There were wide varieties of regional adaptations and differences to the liturgy. Now, there were very likely common prayers and the prayers that the priest said, um, you know, around the Eucharist were probably very similar, if not, if not standardized, but likely, you know, there were sort of certain guides, like you ought to set, you ought to repeat the words Jesus said. Um, but beyond that, there was a lot more variety in the liturgy, you know, the mass in Rome, could be much different from Mass in Constantinople or um, Carthage or, or wherever. Um, you know, there were common things, but then also regional variations. And this is something that persists, by the way, um, really for the first 75% of the church's history. Um, it, it's really when we get to the Council of Trent and the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation you start to see the kind of centralization and standardization of the liturgy. Um, again, it's not to say that they were like all these totally different experiences. That would be mischaracterizing it. But it is to say that um, it, it was not nearly as standardized. There, there weren't nearly as many sort of set prayers and it have to go in this order, you know, in, in the early church. And so there was, was more variety. Um, okay, last thing to, to touch upon today, I think, has to do with, you know, what I'm calling on the outline, popular piety. Um, we've already seen the first example of this, the Marian devotion piece, when we were talking about the Council of Ephesus, and how the debate over whether Mary should be called Theotokos or Christotokos was, you know, polarizing and, and, and 
aroused a lot of um, strong emotions of the people because they had built this or had, had become used to a tradition of, of um, devotion to Mary that viewed her as, um, you know, as the, the mother of God. The, the, um, the image of Mary as the new Eve, you know, in counterpoint to Jesus as the new Adam, certainly goes back to like the second century and, and and then you know beyond moving forward um so certainly by the fourth century uh you know devotion to mary as sort of first and foremost among um the saints you know was pretty common across both east and west also um sort of associated doctrines around around Mary, such as her uh, perpetual virginity, uh, were present in the, in the church by the fourth century. Her intercessory power, if you will, um, again, was, was part of this, was recognized that as the, as the chosen vehicle, God's chosen vehicle uh, of the incarnation, um, she had a sort of special place in in petitioning God on one's behalf as an intercessor. And so she was reverenced in a particular way. In a similar way to that, like rationale, is, is how we have these various cults of devotion to the saints, in particular the martyrs, um, you know, for their their heroism were... were um, very popular as as um, saints that that people called upon for for their intercession, and then uh, you know relics of the saints right are are um, you know again prized and important and uh, you know there had to be some care exercise uh, against a misunderstanding of of the, the point of relics that they weren't talismans or or you know magical objects but rather a way to maintain a, a connection with um you know either a saint a martyr a saint whatever with some someone in the church who'd gone before um and so the 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 use if you will of relics um, by the fourth century, had had grown pretty substantially, especially when Christianity kind of comes out into the open. Um, you know, the the mortal remains of martyrs or other holy people were were treasured, and um, and again, this is this is getting a little bit ahead. This is a decree from um, seven eighty seven from a council in seven eighty seven, but it basically. Um, required that any new church must be consecrated with the presence of a relic in the altar under the altar that a bishop who consecrated a church without relics would be deposed by church law but it shows you how seriously they, they took um relics along with that you know we're also a little, I mean, the fourth century is a little premature, although we have a very good example in Constantine's mother, uh, Helena, the, the idea of pilgrimages to holy places, 
um, we start to see the the beginnings of those um, you know, wanting to follow in the footsteps of Christ or Paul or whomever. Um, special all-inclusive rate with with flights. That's um, four fifteen was the first getaway package special on pilgrimages um, to the Holy Land, and uh, you know four star hotels. No. Um, so I think you know the key the key point here. Oh, and the use of icons. Let, let me just mention them. Um, we're gonna. I'll have more to say about the sort of iconic iconoclast controversy next time. But the use of uh, icons is a little bit slower than than the relics. Let's say in, in terms of becoming a, a popular part of you know the piety of, of everyday Christians because there was a fear that that icons were too close to idolatry or idols um but in the east again it you know it's one of these things that kind of flips um it's something that took hold a little bit earlier in the east in the 300s and then made its way to the west uh we'll see the iconoclast controversy kind of the opposite thing play out um but certainly by the, the middle to late 400s you know there's a increasing level of comfort with the, the use of icons uh, properly understood. Although, as I say, when we get to the 8th century, we'll have the iconoclast controversy and we'll have more to say about that. So with that, um, are there any questions? We're right on the cusp of the Germanic tribes and, and seeing sort of the fall of the Roman Empire and, and what replaced it. So we'll, we'll turn to that next. But uh, any, any last questions? Just you're uh, involved with the uh, uh, with the church with the uh, the thing with the saints the uh, this I don't know if it's this book that show it's weird it's not shot Peter Brown the cult of the saints is that what you're showing us oh yeah the cult of the saints by Peter Brown my God the way he talks about the way they butchered the bodies of these saints they look put them apart oh yeah. It's really good. The book is gory. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, without, I mean, I used to work for the Cardinal, so I don't want to, you know, get in any trouble here. But when there was this whole controversy over the the um, body of Fulton Sheen and, and the diocese in Illinois wanted to bring the body back, it was in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And then somebody floated the proposal, like, well, why not leave, you know, leave a piece of him in, in the cathedral and send most of him back? And the Cardinal said something like, you know, for us today, that kind of would strike us as a little bit odd and we wouldn't be comfortable with that. And a lot of people were like, yeah, well, you should have seen what they used to do in the early church, where, as you're saying, Rob, they, they would cut them, cut them up. Now, the Cardinal has a PhD in church history, so he was very much aware of that. Um, but it's just our modern sensibility doesn't, doesn't really uh, jive very well with that. But it was often a kind of competition to obtain these remains or a part of the remains in a way that's not, not always the most um, <laughs> enriching, uh, sort of spiritually. So they also about these, uh, these saints being one step below heaven. And they were talking about this. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're, they're, they're sitting right next to Christ, you know, in, the, in their in the structure. And, it's, and you can see where it's almost to a point of putting them to a false level. That's right. All, all of these components of the, of the popular piety, you know, were subject to, a, you know, 
being taken too far, exaggeration or misunderstanding. And so it was always, you know, a, a struggle and a part of a task of the leadership of the church to properly explain, you know, why it wasn't idolatry or, or whatever the case may be. I'll leave the rest of my comments to my book review. <laughs> Excellent. I can't wait. Any other questions? Well, thanks very much, everyone. As always, appreciate it. If you have any questions, let me know. Otherwise, I'll see you next Monday. Hey, Craig. Good night. Thank you.